Why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 16 as we, pardon me, chapter 15 as we continue through the study. Uh, chapter 15, I only got through verse 20 on Wednesday night, so we still have some work to do. We're sort of moseying through Mark, um, but uh, we have some work to do. Um, we'll, Lord willing, finish up Mark chapter 15 on Wednesday night. What I'd like to do simply uh, this morning is, um, you know, like we did last week, we kind of read through the whole chapter and we've been just meditating on this section of the, of the scriptures about the cross and a lot of things to think about and discuss. And uh, last week, you know, we, we saw the whole story, but I'd like to take a look this morning at the people around the cross. What were they all doing there? Why were they there? And what was their objective? Um, and we're gonna find there were people who were there out of hatred, we're gonna find there were people there out of love. There were people that were there around the cross out of um, you know, being compelled. They had to be there whether they liked it or not. And then there were others who were there just coincidentally, you know, just kind of accidentally stumbled on a weird situation back in the first century. And I find that those same types of people are around the cross to this very day. And we'll see how that relates as we look at this. The lives of these people that came and went and that were around the cross, the cross affected them differently. They believed differently, they acted differently. And the question is, which one are you? Who are you when it comes to the, re the response to the cross of Jesus Christ? It's a big deal. In fact, I'm gonna argue that the most important decision you have to make in this lifetime might just be, what do you do about the cross of Jesus Christ? That, that's, that's an important thing that you're facing. Even the question, you know, is important. So uh, we'll, we'll start with those that were around the cross out of hatred, um, and we'll kind of start from the worst to the best, uh, perhaps. Uh, those at the cross out of hatred, and that would be the religious leaders. They hated Jesus. They hated him from the very early parts of his ministry. In the early parts, they, they even plotted to say, how are we gonna kill this guy? We wanna kill him. Like, would you agree that's kind of hatred when you want to kill somebody? Uh, well, that's where they were. These are the religious leaders who hated Jesus. In fact, we'll start in verse 10. There, Jesus is being tried before Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler of the day. Uh, this is after the kangaroo courts of the Jewish Sanhedrin and the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests. Um, and now he's standing before high, uh, you know, the, uh, Pontius Pilate and Pilate makes an observation. It's a simple little verse, verse 10. He says, for he, Pontius Pilate, knew that the chief priest had delivered him, Jesus, for envy. Well, Brett, you said that he, they hated him. Well, it sounds like they were envious of him. Well, did you know that that's what envy does? Envy leads to hatred. What did these guys envy about Jesus? What, what would these religious leaders want that Jesus had? Was it his house, his fancy car, his wealth? Well, Jesus had none of those things. So what would they envy Jesus about? Well, actually, I think there were three main things. First, his authority. Very early in Jesus's ministry, when he spoke, do you remember what the people said? Whoa, he speaks as one having authority, not like the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees and all these guys. Jesus, when he speaks, he has authority. Oh, these guys, they didn't have authority. Have you noticed how many people speak, but they don't have any authority? Um, just watching politicians, do you, do you, if you're one of those people that think, oh, they have authority because they're, you're probably not reading things right, I'm just saying. There's a lot of wackiness out there, people that say they're authority on this, and man, I've noticed there's not a lot of authority, and you kind of get a sense 
that, wow, uh, that's just a bunch of hot air. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one having authority and the people loved him for that. Um, the second thing they were perhaps envious of, not only his authority, but also his power. Jesus had visible power. Um, he would raise the dead. He would heal the blind and the sick. He would cleanse the leper. He could speak a word and the, the storm would be calm. Like this was a serious power that was displayed over and over. There's even stories where Jesus just walked down the street and anybody who brushed up against his garment, suddenly, poof, they were healed. Like that, that's power. These guys had none of that. And because of that, the, the people loved Jesus all the more. So he had authority, uh, he had power. But another thing that I think, uh, along with the authority and the power, was also truth. Jesus wasn't afraid to speak the truth, even if it hurt, even if it wasn't the popular thing. Jesus spoke the truth and these religious leaders, well, Jesus said, you guys are a bunch of whitewashed tombs and your mouths are like open sepulchers or graves. Your mouth speaks death, not truth. And he said, you guys are hypocrites. Like Jesus, he was kind of hammering these guys, these religious leaders. And they were envious of his authority, his power, but also his truth. He spoke the truth. By the way, if you speak truth today, don't be shocked if you're hated for it. Uh, that's something that happens. When you speak truth, especially in these modern times, um, people will hate you for that, but you should still speak the truth nonetheless. Speaking the truth, well, the truth will set you free. Uh, but if you're living lies and deception and believing lies and deception, um, that only leads to sadness, sorrow, and total destruction ultimately. But the truth will set you free. Um, the Bible connects truth with love. 1 Corinthians 13 says that, you know, uh, love, true love actually loves the truth. Uh, and that's something that our culture is very much missing, the idea of truth. Um, that's what I love about the Bible is the Bible gives us the truth. Um, and we gotta stick with the word of God. Watch out when people don't do that, when they don't stick with the truth. Um, so they hated Jesus. And by the way, we're seeing uh, uh, more and more people today that hate the cross, hate Jesus Christ, just like these religious leaders. Um, I wonder if maybe the same reasons, they, they're envious of the authority and the power and the truth. And because of that, they hate Jesus. Oh, come on, Brett, who hates Jesus? Hollywood? Just, just movies using Jesus's name in vain all the time. People making fun of the cross and mockery of Jesus and Christians. It's hip right now to make fun of Christians. Oh, don't make fun of Muslims or don't make fun of other you know, religions, but uh, Christianity's fair game today. You can make fun of Christians. You can mock the cross. Well, even if you're a Dodgers fan, no problem. The nuns of indulgences will get a stripper pole that's actually the cross and have their drag queens dancing around the cross. And, and, and people, oh, that's great. Our, man, if you're a Dodgers fan, it's time to repent. Uh, and I'm not joking. If you're, but, but those guys, I like the players. Those players should resign. Like, well, broke their career. There's some things that I think, truth, is something you should actually, I would suggest if those players said, yeah, we're not gonna be a part of this anymore. I bet there's other teams that'll pick those guys up. I believe that. Uh, Cause it's insane uh, how people love to mock Jesus. They mock the cross. It happens all the time now. It's, it's, it's total normal uh, behavior nowadays. But what's interesting about these religious leaders, their anger blinded them to the truth. In fact, I would argue these guys even knew the truth to some extent, but were so envious and angry, they were seeing things blurry. Have you ever been so angry that you don't see things correctly? 
Um, this was, by the way, a tactic. I, I learned the hard way uh, playing against uh, some guys in football. Uh, when I was in the high school, we were in this tiny little high school that happened to be in the big leagues with all the other schools. We had no business being there. Um, we played you know, Medford High School, which was one high school back then. And we called it the University of Medford. Um, we had like 800 students in my high school. They had thousands and thousands. You know, we'd sign up our cheerleaders to, to play football because we were so, like seriously, I was the only guy on my team under, over 200 pounds uh, at my school. And we played against the university. There was not a guy under 200 pounds at Medford. Uh, we have some of those Medford black tornadoes here in our church, which I, I'm praying for their salvation, but <laughs> uh, just, just kidding. I remember this one time I was playing against one, one of the Medford guys head to head and he was like NFL quality kind of football player, but uh, he was way better than I was. But um, I was having a good game. Uh, I was tactically kind of outsmarting him just a little bit because I worked weeks in advance to play against this one huge guy, really strong, powerful guy. I was doing all right. Um, but this guy, he had a tactic that actually was worked for him. And that is when we were under the big pile of guys after the play, um, he under the pile, he'd just be kind of there and he grabbed my skin and just start twisting it like this. And while all the guys are getting off, you know, uh, I just feel this little twist of pain. I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, well, well, what a jerk, you know? And, and, then, and then the next time he'd, he'd just give me a few little punches, like poof, poof. Like it didn't even really hurt, but it was just making me more and more furious. And you say, well, why would he do that? Well, it worked. I was so mad after a few of these times that I just started seeing blurry and my, my tactical play went out the window. And uh, uh, it's, it's hard to explain it. You athletes know, if you lose your brains in anger, you start playing very ineffectively and without any skill. That was his tactic. I think that's the tactic of the enemy today is, is to get you angry so that you don't see things clearly and you start living life wrong. That's these guys. Let me give you a little example. These guys hate Jesus. They wanna kill Jesus, but they make an admission that's quite interesting here. In fact, um, the religious leaders, um, you know, we already saw that they delivered Jesus with envy, but look at verse 31. It says, likewise, also the chief priests, these are the religious leaders, mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. These, these religious leaders hated him, but did you see what they just admitted? They just admitted he saved others. Wait a minute, if you admit that, what does that make you? If Jesus saved others, and they're saying himself, he cannot save. Yeah, but that's wrong. We know he could have saved himself like that, no problem. But they were so deluded, so angry, so deceived that they kind of blew off the fact that he saved others. He healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed the leper, calmed the storm. He saved others. They admitted that. That's kind of shocking. That's what happens when you get angry is you don't see things clearly and you miss important things. Um, sadly, much of our culture is moving away from uh, you know, uh, Jesus and there's a hatred for Jesus. We see that. Uh, there was an article here a while back. Uh, people get in, inverted cross symbols on their foreheads, recite hail Satan during an unbaptism ritual at a pagan pride fest. You say, oh, come on, Brett, that's a bunch of fringe people. There were tens of thousands of people at this thing. And what they did is this article says, the satanic temple was among the groups present at the event and the activists wearing demonic masks and robes charged passerbys $10 for unbaptisms in which participants renounced superstitious 
um, superstitions that may have been imposed upon them without their consent as a child. In other words, if your parents taught you about Jesus when you're a little kid. Um, So-called unbaptism also uh, gave them certificates saying this, quote, all bonds of servitude have been broken. Power and agency have been restored. Thyself is thy master, hail Satan. Now, wait a second. Uh, does that just show how stupid they are? They said, thyself is thy master. And then they said, hail Satan, which means, well, who's really your master? If you're saying hail to Satan, uh, you know, uh, we don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that one out. When asked about their purpose for coming, one of the attendees told the journalist that was there that she wanted to bother Christians and make them mad. Um, members of the Temple of Satan were seen dancing and cackling around a single man who was there praying to the Lord you know, for attendees of the unbaptism event. Um, they were abusing this poor little guy praying for these people. Washington Times, uh, just May of this year, um, did Facebook just censor Jesus? Bizarre hate speech message sparked concern. There's a guy who posted on his Facebook, um, he said this, quote, Jesus died so you could live. That's all he said. Um, and then to that guy's shock, Facebook posted a follow-up saying uh, this was a hate speech claim that Jesus died uh, so that you could live. And so they removed it. He appealed the decision. So Facebook reviewed it and the post was found still to be uh, in violation against face, faith. Uh, Facebook's uh, policies. Um, there's an active fighting against the cross of Jesus Christ and it's getting more and more rampant. Uh, people are making fun of it. It's happening sadly, even in the churches, uh, so-called, uh, these false churches and religious systems. Um, now there's another group, not just false churches and people just in general, but have you ever noticed that you know, the atheist movement has become more ramped up in the last decade or so? Um, do you ever wonder why are the atheists so grouchy all the time? I mean, I've, I don't know that I've ever met a, an atheist that's just jolly and full of joy all the time. Uh, I've met a lot of Christians that have that, but no atheist. Um, but I can understand why. If you're an atheist here today, can I, can I just suggest something for you to think about? And that is this, that the atheist view, um, no wonder all the atheists are grouchy. If this is all there is, this life, you got 75, 76 years on the average and you know, you're gonna kick the bucket and cease to exist. So enjoy this life while you can. No wonder they're so cynical and upset. That's kind of depressing. See, as Christians, we believe that after you die, that's the best day of your life. The best day of my life is the day I'm gonna die and go and live in eternity with my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Brett, you're just deluded. You believe a fantasy. Here's something that's kind of funny to think about. Now, I'm not, I'm not willing to give this, but let's just for 10 seconds pretend something and I only have 10 seconds to do it. Let's pretend God doesn't exist and the atheist is right. Knowing what most of you in this room know now, would you still rather be a Christian knowing God doesn't exist or an atheist uh, who has no hope at all? Like it's funny, as a Christian, even if God didn't exist, which he does, and I believe that with all my heart, but even if God didn't exist, I'd choose Christianity. You know what happens when you become a Christian? You start saying, you know what? I'm not living for myself. I'm living for the Lord. That's one of the things we Christians do. We, we say, oh wow, we're supposed to die to ourselves and serve others and love others. And you know, if you're focused on yourself, you're gonna be the most miserable person. That's why atheists are miserable because they, they think about themselves. They only believe what their little selfish brain can conjure up. You have to get outside yourself and even humble yourself, become like a little child to have faith. But when you do, isn't it strange how Christians have this joy and peace and 
and happiness that the atheist often really doesn't have. Now, I, I always have this, you know, atheist come up to me, you know, after service and, oh, I'm an atheist and I'm really happy. <laughs> I'm a happy person. I'm like, mm. don't know, it doesn't really look that. Um, you know, here's the thing. I would choose Christianity, even if I found out if it wasn't true, because it's a happier, better way to live. You're not self-centered. You're, you're not focused on your, your own you know, life and you, you got other things that are bigger and uh, outside of yourself. It's so much better. But add to the fact that God is alive and well and powerful and Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world so that we can have heaven to look forward to. Man, that's just the truth of it all. Sad that so many atheists are so militant these days against you know, the joy of Christianity um, and they're missing out. So in our little discussion here, we're, we first looked at the cross out of hatred. These religious leaders were there out of hatred and envy. The second group, uh, they were compelled to be at the cross. In fact, the next three groups are all compelled. They had to be there. Uh, the first one I wanna bring up is Simon the Cyrenian. He's also at the cross. What's he doing there? Interesting story. We see that in verse 21. Mark doesn't tell us much about this. Mark says this in verse 21. And they, the Romans, compel one Simon a Cyrenian who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Who is this guy? Simon the Cyrenian. Well, Cyrenian is an old name for what we would call today a Libyan. He was from Libya, Northern Africa. What in the world is an African guy doing with his family here in Jerusalem? Well, most uh, you know, historians know there was a huge movement of Northern Africans to become practicing Jews. Um, it happened actually way back a thousand years earlier during the reign of Solomon. When Solomon was the king, Judaism, uh, it's funny because Judaism wasn't really an evangelistic thing. They didn't try to gain more Jews, but it happened during the reign of Solomon. And so there were the Northern Africans that would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem on the Passover. And that's probably, we can speculate why Simon the Cyrenian was in Jerusalem. He was there for the Passover with his family. So imagine yourself, you're kind of chilling in Jerusalem, doing your Passover thing, and then you kind of hear a hubbub and the streets lined with people and there's anger and people yelling stuff. And suddenly this bloody guy comes walking down the street carrying this big beam. And then all of a sudden you feel it on your shoulder. The tip of a Roman spear tapping you on the shoulder saying, pick up his cross and carry it to that top of that hill over there, the hill of the skull. That's kind of gonna ruin your vacation, don't you think? It's like, that's a tough day on your vacation. Well, that's what Simon, the Cyrenian. See, the Romans had a, a rule. This is interesting because if, if the Romans told you to do something, you had to do it. It wasn't, you know, like uh, the land of the free, home of the brave. It was a land of the, under the iron fist of Rome. And a Roman soldier could compel you to do anything. Remember when Jesus said, if somebody compels you to walk with them one mile, what did Jesus say? Walk with them two. Well, who compels you to walk with them a mile? A Roman soldier. That's what Jesus was talking about. See, a Roman would be walking along and, and find somebody and say, hey, tap you on the shoulder, give you his backpack and say, carry my backpack for a mile. And by the way, the Romans only said it, they could do that up to a mile or you know, that length of space. So they didn't call it a mile back then. But, um, but all that to say, Jesus said, walk with them too. He's talking about the Roman compelling you to walk with them. Um, and so... That's what was going on here. He was tapped by the Romans to carry this bloody man's cross. What's going on? 
The question I would raise is what did that do? Did you think Simon's life was changed from that day forward? You know, he didn't know what was probably going on at first, but um, you know, when your life is involved with something that's cataclysmic, you remember what was happening. Do you remember where you were? Some of you, the older folks in here on 9-11, September 11th, back when the towers went down, where were you? You remember, oh, I know right where I was because there was a moment in time that was, that was a life-changing event that changed our worldview. Well, this is one of those events and Simon doesn't even realize not only is he near it, he's in the thick of it because he's carrying the cross of Jesus. Do you think that changed his life? Well, we don't even really have to speculate. There's a little bit of a thread. Why does Mark give us the name of his sons, Alexander and Rufus? Like, it's almost like Mark handles it like, oh yeah, that's, you know, you know the, that's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Like, we're supposed to go, oh yeah, well, what does that mean? How old was Mark, John Mark, when, he, when, when the gospel happened, the writer of this gospel? He was just a kid when this all happened. Who was feeding Mark this information to write this gospel, anybody remember? It was Peter. The gospel of Mark is largely from Peter's perspective. John Mark, the author here, was just a child. Uh, and guess who else were children at the time of this? It was Rufus's, Rufus and Alexander, the, the sons of this Simon and Cyrene. So it's almost like the author Mark, it's like he knows who Rufus and Alexander is. Well, Brett, you're speculating, maybe, but isn't it interesting? Years and years later, Paul the apostle in Romans 16, 13 says, salute Rufus chosen in the Lord. Apparently, Paul the apostle was friends with Rufus and his mother and mine. What is he saying there? He's saying, say howdy to Rufus and also his mom, who's basically my mother in the faith. By the way, don't you love how the church has spiritual mothers? You know, uh, I love how that, that's part of the deal. And Paul says, yeah, Rufus's mom. And most scholars believe that we're talking about Rufus's mother was probably Simon uh, his wife. Where's Alexander? We'll probably talk about that on Wednesday night. We'll see. Uh, there's maybe a mention of him as well. But it seems that Rufus became friends with Paul and was one of the chosen of the Lord to be in the church. And so we can speculate that the cross would change Simon, uh, his life completely. Simon the Cyrene. He was a follower of Jesus and his family followed Jesus and his family would be changed. And it would ripple all the way into the early church where Paul the apostle becomes uh, a friend of Rufus. I love this. I've seen this, by the way. Have you ever seen the ripple effect of the gospel? Um, you know, in my family, my parents were not Christians. When I was born, my parents were not saved. Um, I've gotten this backwards in previous times I've told the story, but my mom keeps reminding me, oh, Brett, you were born when this all went down. And I was like, oh, phew. I don't remember my parents not being Christians. Why? Because I was just a newly born baby when my mom was reached a new level of depression. Um, why? It was the middle of the 1960s. Uh, things were, the world was kind of going crazy. Drugs where she was at in Southern California in Orange County was, was kind of rampant. Um, my dad was into racing hot rods and stealing transmissions out of cars and being in trouble with the police and, and using all of our money for his hot rods. And uh, my dad was kind of a tough, brutal dude back in those days. Um, I didn't know him like that. My, my dad, I, I only know him as a godly Christian guy who loved the Lord. Um, but my mom was depressed as this lifestyle was getting worse. And, and then the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back for my mom in her depression 
was one of her best friends, was on an LSD, bad LSD trip. She poured gasoline all over her body and lit herself on fire and killed herself. It's like the most horrible way I could imagine ever dying. This was my mom's best friend. And my mom was at the point of saying, I'm gonna check out. She, she had de determined she was gonna commit suicide herself. Um, but she remembered a little book that her, I think it was her aunt that gave her a book, uh, the Bible. And she set it up on a shelf and she thought, boy, I've heard about this book and it's important. So maybe before I kill myself, I will read this book. So she pulls it down off the shelf and in, in about a month's time, she read it cover to cover before she was gonna kill herself. But the language of the Bible, as she read through cover to cover, she realized there was this thing called salvation. And when she'd read that word, she knew that's exactly what she needed. She needed salvation from whatever she was living. She, you know, and she did exactly what the Bible said in despair, but reading this message of the Bible about forgiveness of sin and hope and stuff like that, she got to the place of saying, okay. And she really did what the Bible, she had no priest or pastor, no televangelist, nobody led her to the Lord. She just read her Bible. And when it got to what the Bible said, Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus that he rose from the grave and it says, you will be saved. So my mom said, I need that. And so she, she confessed Christ as her savior. Um, my dad came home from work that day and uh, the story, it's fun to hear my dad tell it because he said, you know, she was depressed. Um, um, everybody thought my mom was Barbara Eden. You know, I dream a genie. Like they, they'd come up and ask her, are you Barbara Eden? Like in the grocery store. Um, she looked just like Barbara Eden. Um, and, but, but she had kind of this dark, depressed look um, during that dark time of her life. But my dad said the day he came home that she accepted Christ, he said she was literally glowing. Her face glowed. You say, Brad, how does that happen? I don't know, just you can look at my mom. She, her face has been growing, glowing for these 57 years. Like she still glows. She has a glow about her uh, ever since she accepted Christ. And my dad, it took him a while, about a month, I think, um, when he finally, he saw her glowing day after day and he finally just said you know, to my mom, whatever you have, I need that. And so my mom explained what she did and accepted the Lord. And so my dad accepted Christ and then he had a radical experience with the Lord um, where the Lord just kind of sealed it in his heart. And that's really all I know. I grew up with Jesus in my house. Uh, I'd come home from school and there'd be Jesus music playing. I'd eat dinner at night with my family and then we'd do family devotions with the Bible. Um, my parents would go to church. It was a non-negotiable, Sundays and Wednesdays, part of what we did. Um, I just know my parents as Christians. And so me and my sisters, we, we had no hope of being secular atheists. <laughs> right, that's what they said, you being brainwashed. I'm so glad my parents washed my brain when I was a kid because <laughs> it needed some serious washing. And I'm so glad my parents taught me about the truth when I was a kid. And um, I value that more than just about anything, that I got a solid biblical teaching when I was a kid. And, and you know, and, and then I accepted the Lord at, at the ripe old age of five. Um, and I've and, uh, been a Christian ever since, never once regretting. My kids are saved. You know, it's like, it's, and then to see the ripple effect of the ministries of my sisters and what the Lord's done through my family, my parents, churches have started, not just Athey Creek, other churches have started in my home when I was a kid. Uh, people were saved. It's like to see the ripple effect that started with my mom at one minute wanting to kill herself and the next minute being saved. Um, the cross did that. The cross of Jesus Christ and the ripple effect has been profound in my life. And it might be even affecting yours as you're attending a church here 
from a, uh, you know, and, and hearing from the scriptures from a goofball like me, the only reason I'm here is really largely because what my mom did uh, and getting saved at a real dark time in her life. Like I love how the, the gospel ripples out far and wide. Um, that's what happened with Simon, this, this guy, the Cyrene. Um, and he ends up being kind of down in, as a famous guy in the cross, uh, about the cross. So there were some people at the cross out of hatred, the religious leaders. There was one guy compelled to be at the cross because the Romans made him, Simon the Cyrene. The third group, uh, and also compelled to be at the cross, would be um, the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers. Um, they were under orders. They had to do it in their military duty. They had to be there. Josephus writes about how in a crucifixion setting of the Roman Empire, they would often assign four soldiers to each person crucified, along with a centurion who would be sort of in charge of that situation. That would be minimal. So they know probably minimally Jesus had four soldiers plus a centurion uh, assigned, and it was their duty to crucify him. Once Pilate gave the order, those soldiers were morally obligated to carry out their duties. Now, uh, what's, what, what, what causes me to think is when does a soldier rebel against his orders? Boy, if you've been in military, that's a tricky call. Um, you know, I mean, we've dealt with stuff like that, even in Vietnam, um, uh, situations like Mei Lai and others where people say, shouldn't the soldiers have not done what they were ordered to do? Or, and people argue about that stuff. Um, you could argue this is a time where the Romans should have said, yeah, we're not doing that. Uh, another thing, the Nazis. Don't you think that some of those Nazi SS soldiers should have at one point said, eh, gassing tens of thousands of people at a time, uh, killing off a whole race of people, uh, we probably shouldn't have followed those orders. But sadly, they all brainlessly went in and just followed orders. Same with these Romans. They're in a place where they've been ordered to do something. But, you know, there's a dead giveaway. These guys weren't just doing their duty. It seemed that they were enjoying it. Uh, check it out. It's verse 16. We pick it up. It says, and the soldiers led him away to the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees, worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Man, these guys are going the extra mile in brutality. They didn't have to hit him over the head with a reed. Nobody had gave that order. Um, they didn't have to mock him and put a purple robe on and play with the whole king of the Jews thing. By the way, I hope that when you are in a group of people doing your duty as your employment or your school or whatever you're doing, I hope you know when the line is you're crossing a line of doing your duty versus just blatant, rampant sin. I think sometimes we struggle with that. Maybe you're a salesperson, you're in sales and you sell and I go, oh yeah, Pastor Red, I'm a salesman. But you know, I, you know, I have to stretch the story sometimes. You know, when I'm trying to sell the product, you know, I gotta kind of stretch the story, give God the glory. <laughs> you know, it's like sales, you know. Do you realize that's actually sin? You're, you're crossing the line. It's not your duty to lie to people. Maybe you're an athlete at school and you're like, yeah, you know, I, I've got to hang out with these guys. They're a bunch of sinners. And I'm in the locker room, they're telling jokes, but you know, I, they're, they're, I'm laughing with them because, well, it's kind of what athletes do. And I don't want to be, you know, hey, you've got a duty to be an athlete and be part of a team. But sometimes you get sucked into stuff that you really, it's over and beyond 
and it's just called sin. Watch out for that. That's what happens with these Roman soldiers. Some people call it group numbing. You're part of a group and you become numb to what's actually not acceptable, but you're all doing it, so it seems okay. By the way, I mentioned Melai. Melai is one of the more controversial things that happened in Vietnam where, you know, remember when they were, you know, the soldiers were touted as baby killers or whatever, and Melai is where that kind of came from. There was a, a radical skirmish that, you know, some women and children were killed. And, you know, I'm not here to argue, you know, the Vietnam situation. I, our guys were in a horrible situation there. Um, but that's what they believe. They call it group numbing, where they'd been fighting in the jungle so long that their sense of morality left. That's what happens. These Romans are there with God in the flesh and they're mocking him and they're punching him in the face, hitting him over the head with a reed. How does somebody do that? Um, I believe it's the same thing that happens to us. But even these soldiers, could it be, we saw Simon the Cyrenian who was compelled to be there and there's evidence that he was saved by the cross. Could it be that some of these soldiers were saved? I believe it's possible. Check out verse 37. It says in verse 37, um, and Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost and the veil of the temple was rent in twain or two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, which is the guy in charge, when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This guy makes a confession. Truly this guy that's hanging here is the son of God. Do you think that confession was the, the confession that saved him? It's hard to say for sure just from this point of view, but we're gonna find a guy that almost says less and we're sure he does go to heaven. I'll show you that in a second. I wouldn't be surprised at all if when we show up to heaven, we'll see this guy wandering around and go, who are you? I'm the centurion. I hung him on the cross. I drove the nails. But as it turns out, um, I realized that he really was the son of God and that's what got me into heaven. You see, we talk about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and what that is, and it's actually an esoteric discussion of what it is, and it's hard to even talk about, but this guy is actually doing the opposite of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit by saying, truly, this is the Son of God. That's the opposite. If you know what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, he's doing the opposite by acknowledging that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so I think there's hope that we will see these guys. Uh, but there's another one who was compelled, or two that were there. They had to be at the cross. We, we have number one, the cross out of hatred, the religious leaders. Compelled to be at the cross, Simon the Cyrenian. Compelled to be at the cross, the Roman soldiers. But number four on our list, compelled to be at the cross, the two thieves. Wouldn't you say they were compelled to be there? They had no choice in the matter. Uh, there they were, hanging next to Jesus on the cross. We see that in verse 27. It says in verse 27, and with him, they crucified two thieves, the one on the right hand and the other on his left. By the way, that's a fulfillment of prophecy. We'll talk more about that on uh, Wednesday night. But these guys are also, we see in verse 32, at the end of verse 32, it says, and they that were crucified with him reviled him. They hated him and mocked him just like everybody else. Now the gospel of Mark only gives us that about the two thieves. It's very brief the two thieves were there mocking him just like everybody else. But Mark, his gospel, in fact, this chapter is really short compared to like the other ones. In Luke's gospel, we get even a more full description of what happened. In fact, would you keep your finger here in Mark and flip over to Luke 23? Uh, just, to, just turn to the right in your Bible, maybe a 16th of an inch in pages to the right there. 
Um, and it says there in Luke chapter 23, we, we get the full description of these thieves and what actually happened, uh, which is kind of fascinating. Check this out. I love this. I'll tell you, this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible right here. I'll tell you why in a second. In verse 39 of Luke 23. And one of the malefactors, that's the criminals that were hanging next to Jesus, which were hanged, railed on him saying, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, dost thou not fear God seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. And then verse 42, he like turns to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Why do you love this story? Brett, I'll tell you why, I love it for so many reasons. One, if this guy can make it to heaven, so can you. If this guy can make it to heaven, so can I. What good thing did this guy ever do? Well, it's hard to find anything. Did he give to the poor? Did he um, go to church and become a member of Athey Creek, even though we don't have a membership? Did he, did he a witness, share the gospel? Did he get baptized? Did he speak in tongues? Did he uh, you know, love his wife? Like, we don't know anything that he did. All we know is he even admits it. In fact, there's, there's some things here I wanna I want show you about this guy. Um, just five or so things that you can jot down if you want to. But these are important because we're gonna find out this guy is saved by faith alone. That's it. No good works was he saved by. However, what brought him to a place of faith is kind of an interesting thing to think about. The first thing I want you to jot down on this, number one, he knew he was going to die. He says that with the guy, don't you understand? We're under the same condemnation he is. We're about to die just as much as he is about to die. And he's, he's sort of arguing with his other thief on the cross saying, are you kidding me? We're, we're all about to die here. We're under the same condemnation. By the way, before you can really be saved and repent of your sins, you kind of have to know you're gonna die, not only death, but eternal death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. He knew he was gonna die. And, and that's the first thing I, I think we'll have to understand. I think in our culture, people like to live in denial and forget uh, there's gonna be a day I'm going to die. And uh, Brett, you always like to remind us of that. Uh, don't we love going to church? 10 out of every 10 people die. The statistics are alarming on death. Um, but people don't wanna think about that. We're in a culture that tries to erase death and we, we pump our lips up with some Botox and, you know, and get everything younger looking or at least try, but we end up looking like freaks and, uh, and trying to look younger, act younger, and we're a bunch of weirdos. Um, but, but as it turns out, it, death will catch up with you, every single one of us. That's what this guy understands. That's the first step in being saved, I think, to know that you're gonna die and then number two, not only number one, he knew he was going to die. Number two, he knew that the punishment he was receiving was just. He admits that. He says, we deserve to be here, he says to the other guy. That's the second step in getting to a place of faith. Admitting that you're a sinner who deserves whatever you get. By the way, there's another word for that in the Bible. It's called repentance. Repentance means to acknowledge your sin before God, to change your mind about it, not sit there and say, I'm a good person. People like me, I'm, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough. No, that's a secular, godless worldview. The right worldview is to say, I'm a sinner and I deserve death and hell. 
By the way, when you get to that understanding, oh, freedom. You'll be freed up when you realize, stop defending yourself and just say, I am a wretched, miserable sinner. And some of you, you, you knew that early. Others of you has taken more of your life to re realize that. But it's nonetheless true. Uh, get, we're getting what we deserve. That's called justice, death. By the way, it was King Frederick II of Prussia back in the 1600s. He was visiting a prison uh, in his realm uh, just to kind of see the condition of the prison. And as he walked through, a bunch of the prisoners were freaking out. I'm innocent. You know, King Frederick, please, mercy. I've done nothing wrong and I don't deserve being. And, and the, they all started, you know, running up to him and trying to get him to give, you know, pardon them and stuff, saying, we're innocent. We're innocent. Well, one dude was sitting off over in the corner by himself, just quietly. And the king noticed that he was the only dude that was, that was not arguing his innocence, but he was just sitting there. And so the king walked up to him and asked, why are you here? And the guy said, armed robbery, your honor. <laughs> and the, the king said, were you guilty of it? And he said, yes, sir, and I deserve everything I've received. And the king turned and found one of the guards and gave the order to the guard, release this guilty man. I don't want him corrupting all these innocent people. <laughs> That's a true story. That's what he did. Um, that's us. When you become a Christian, you're the guy in the corner saying, I deserve death and hell. I'm getting everything I deserve. I don't deserve one good thing. And then our King of Kings comes and says, admitting guilt is repentance. And you're repenting and acknowledging what you deserve. But better than Frederick II of Prussia, we have one who says, I will die in your place and give you eternal life. Um, I love that. So um, this guy, uh, he acknowledged his own punishment was just. He knew he was going to die. Um, and then number three, he acknowledged Jesus was without guilt. He said, he's done nothing. We're the ones who deserve to die here. So do you see, this guy actually does a lot in a, in a short amount of seconds. He acknowledges that he's guilty and Jesus was innocent. Um, he owed a debt you could not pay, but he paid a debt he did not owe. And because Jesus was out without sin, he could be the substitute to die on our behalf. If, if you're a sinner doomed for hell and Pastor Brett comes, I'll die for your sins. You wanna know why that won't work? Because if I died, I'd be dying for my own sins and deserve every bit of it. And there's not enough to go around. But Jesus died who owed no debt of sin. And that's why he was able to die for the sins of the world. So number one, he knew he was going to die. Number two, he knew his own punishment was just. Number three, he acknowledged Jesus was without guilt. Number four, he recognized Jesus as king. He said, Lord, verse 42, he said, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Where does this guy get all this? I, I don't know. But he understands there's a sign over Jesus that says king of the Jews in different languages. And somehow this guy gets to the place where he says, no, I think he is the king of a kingdom that's not of this world. Like, that's an amazing conclusion this guy made as he's hanging on a cross, but he does it nonetheless. He was accepting Jesus's words and his claims of authority and power. Number five, and lastly, he needed Jesus's mercy. So he cries out and says, remember me. He has to ask. He asked Jesus, would you please remember me? And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I told you I love this because the story about the thief, but I love the thief for so many other reasons too, the, the whole story of the thief. It answers all kinds of Bible questions, a lot of very difficult Bible questions. Have you ever been asked about soul sleep? When you die, does your soul go into the, your body goes into the ground and your soul goes to sleep until the resurrection? 
There's people that teach that. The problem is the thief on the cross. Jesus didn't say, today you will be buried and your soul will go to sleep for a long, long time and then the resurrection, and then I'll see you then. He didn't say that. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Your soul is not gonna be asleep. You're gonna be with me. Where Jesus goes into paradise, that's Luke 16, it's a whole other thing, and then ushers everybody into heaven from there. It's a whole other story. But all that to say, uh, this guy actually had to ask and Jesus answered and saved the guy. Um, what's another biblical theological question? Soul sleep, what, what about baptism? Have you ever been told you gotta be baptized if you're really saved? You're not gonna go to heaven unless you're dunked in the water or sprinkled by water or whatever they say. Um, did you notice Jesus didn't, you know, the guy says, will you remember me when you go to heaven and all that? And Jesus said, oh, hold on, everybody. Uh, we're gonna leave the cross, hold on. And Jesus and the guy end up in the Jordan River, splash, and then back up on the cross. Okay, back, to, oh, back at it, here we go. Uh, now it's time to die. You're okay, you got baptized. He didn't do that. Didn't do that, why? Guess what? Did you know baptism is what you do out of obedience? It's obedience, but it's not what saves you. Baptism doesn't save you. It's, that's something you do. That's a work. When you walk down to the river and say, I'm going to get baptized, it's a good work. And good works will follow those that believe. Faith without works is in fact dead. G James was right. But it's not the works that saves you. This is where people get confused. There's whole denominations that will say, unless you've been baptized in water, you're not going to heaven. Well, then what about the thief on the cross? Because he makes it. And what he does, well, he does what the Bible actually says is required for somebody to be saved. Um, what does Ephesians 2a say? You're saved by grace through baptism? No, you're saved by grace through faith, not of your works, not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. That's Ephesians 2.8. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that's faith, um, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him up from the dead and be baptized. Oh, it doesn't say that there. In that case, it says, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So you're saved by grace through faith, not of your works. Works are a result and the fruit of you being saved. I hope you're, I hope you're getting that. Um, people get upset about this one. It's because they haven't carefully seen how the Bible handles this. Uh, the thief on the cross answers all kinds of theological questions uh, and it's, it's faith alone that saved this man. Well, we gotta hurry. Number five on our list of people uh, in review, the cross out of hatred, religious leaders. Compelled to be at the cross, Simon the Cyrenian, the Roman soldiers, the two thieves. The next group of people are coincidentally, accidentally, you might think, um, at the cross. Who are they? The people passing by. Verse 29, it says in our text there, back to Matthew, uh, pardon me, Math, uh, Mark 15, verse 29. They that passed by, just the people walking by the street there, they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, "Ah, oh, thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. These are just people. Now, why would people be walking by? Did you know the Romans would always put the crosses of crucifixion um, right at the main entrances of the city, just outside of the city, outside of the city walls where everybody would come and go. Why would they do that? To instill fear among the people like whatever you do, don't mess with the Romans. Uh, you might end up hanging with these guys out on a cross, dying. 
Um, so it was a very threatening thing. It'd be like, you know, when you go into a town off the freeway and as soon as you drop down the, the off-ramp, why do the people with the cardboard signs stand there? It's where everybody comes and goes. It's the main thoroughfare. Um, that's where that, that you can get people to come. Same thing with the people that were passing by. They were either coming or going inside and outside of Jerusalem. But these people, the passerby, did you hear what they said? You said you could destroy the temple and build a three. Get out off the cross and save yourself. They knew just enough religion to be dangerous. Question, where do they get this narrative where they say, they pass by wagging their heads saying, thou that destroy the temple. Did Jesus ever say he was gonna destroy the temple? No, he said the temple would be destroyed prophetically there in Matthew 23, but he wasn't the one who's gonna do it. But he did say, if you destroy this temple, speaking of his body, um, then I will raise it up in three days. So what did they do? They did the same thing everybody does today. They misconstrue words and, and spin and, and uh, uh, prop, uh, propagandize. Uh, and that's what happened. In the trial, the kangaroo court of the religious, they said, he said he was gonna tear down the temple. And the priest ripped his clothes. Why would you tear down the temple and say in three days you could raise it up again? That's not what Jesus said. Most people know just enough religious jargon to put themselves in hell's path. That's these guys. They know just enough. Now, it's tempting to be furious because these are the people that, I just generally don't like people like this. Have you ever met a person that wags their head? Brad, what is, I know a dog wagging their tail. What does it mean to wag your head? Have you ever seen somebody, these are the annoying people. Uh, have you ever met the, the ones who are like, I know more than you do and I'm smarter than everybody else. It's everybody pretty much downtown Portland, like all the protesters and, and college professors. They wag their heads, it's a, it's a thing. Uh, and that's what, you say, Brett, why are you harping on the wagging the head part? Did you know this is another prophecy box to check? You can check another, pro Jesus fulfilling prophecy left and right. Mark, Mark chapter 15, there's like 20 prophecy boxes out of 300 uh, that Jesus checks. And the wagging head people, well, we'll look at this deeper on Wednesday night, but it's Psalm 22, the Psalm of the cross. A thousand years earlier, the psalmist wrote prophetically about the cross, a bunch of stuff. But one of the things he said in verse seven and eight, it says, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out at the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. Um, the same words would come out of not only the passerby, but the priests themselves. They'd say, he saved others, you know, save himself. They would wag their heads. That was, that was a prophecy given about the cross uh, from David, the psalmist. But one thing you and I have to remember before we leave this, the passerby crowd, they were there just accidentally, coincidentally, but they were still gonna be held responsible for their response to the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is something where I hope the Lord softens my heart on because you know what, I don't like headwaggers. I don't like when people mock my Lord and Savior. I even mentioned that earlier, people that hate the cross. Man, I have a hard time when I hear people use Jesus's name in vain and I get my dander up and I almost feel hostile towards some people that are like using my Savior's name grotesquely. But there's something you and I need to always remember. Jesus died for those people too. Do you ever wonder how many of these passerbys were wagging their heads? But maybe, just maybe some of them realized when the sun went dark, and Jesus gave up the ghost and earth quaked and graves opened and people, dead people started walking around like, this, this is a radical story. I wonder if eventually some of these headwaggers 
eventually got saved. Even they could be saved. And guess what? Jesus gave you and I one charge when he left. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And guess what? That includes the head-wagging people. Um, I, I almost feel like the church has taken an attitude. If you're not a part of our church, then you're gonna go to hell and you deserve it. Is that the heart of the Lord? No. Jesus had compassion on all of these people. Here he is looking at the Roman soldiers who were literally crucifying him. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Oh, may the Lord put a compassion in your heart and my heart as AC Creekers in Portland, which is kind of an epicenter of headwaggers. The town we live is the epicenter of this. And we need to have a heart of compassion for people that are headwaggers, that are hating the cross, whether they're there by being compelled or even coincidentally. Um, there's two more uh, groups that I wanna look at. Number six on the list, the, at the cross out of love. And it's the women in the story. The women win an A. All the men in the story, with the exception of maybe John gets a B minus, uh, but the women get an A on this story. It's the women who sort of seem to understand stuff that's going on way better than the guys. We don't see any of the men in the story uh, in Mark's account. Uh, John's gospel tells us that John was there. John's like, I was there and he wrote about it in his gospel. Uh, with Jesus's mother. Remember, Jesus looked at John and said, John, behold your mother, mom, behold your son. It's like he was passing the baton. But most scholars believe John and Mary left right after that happened. But what does our text tell us here in Mark 15, verse 40? It says, there were also women looking afar off among whom was Mary Magdalene. She was saved from seven demonic spirits by Jesus. Um, she was a woman of the world and, and, and demonic stuff. And you know, the old saying, you know, those who are forgiven much, love much. No wonder Mary Magdalene was there. She was there, I think, out of love for Christ. Along with Mary, the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph, and Salome, uh, who also, when was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him to Jerusalem. Man, it's the ladies that are there at the cross. And I believe they're there because of the love they had for Jesus as they served him and knew he was the Messiah. This group of women. You know, um, the thing that I love about this is this actually, I see this reflected in the church of Jesus Christ today. Oh, how thankful I am for the role women play in the church of Jesus Christ because we see those same roles play out at the cross. The goofy dudes were, they were not even there for the most part. They'd all ran for their lives, didn't wanna be any part of this. But the women, they're there spiritually perceptive. The women were the last ones at the cross and the first one at the tomb. The, the women, it's almost like, you know, Jesus wrote it in crayon for the guys. Okay, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. They're gonna whip me with a whip. They're gonna nail me to a cross and crucify me. I'm gonna die. And three days later, I'm gonna raise from the dead. And when I raise from the dead, I want you guys to meet me in Galilee. Like he said that over and over and over for the guys. But were they thinking about that ever? It wouldn't be long until after they go, oh yeah, Jesus told us to wait for him. Uh, whoops. That was the guys. Their spiritual perception was almost non-existent. Now, by the way, I'm not just knocking guys. I love the logic, I love the bravery, 
I like the strength of the guys and all that stuff. They offer some great things, but it's the women that offered, offered more of a spiritual sensitivity and a, a, a love for Jesus and a heart to worship Jesus that you just kind of didn't see in the men. And I'm gonna sound maybe uh, sexist or misogynistic, call me whatever you want. It's not stopped me before. <laughs> but I believe men and women are very different. Um, I know that's not the narrative today, but men and women are different. And I don't believe men are called and women are called to do all the same stuff. And you know what's, what's on the chopping block of the church of Jesus Christ is that is what the Bible teaches that men are to lead the church in the area of pastoring and eldering. Men are to lead the church. The Bible didn't stutter when it wrote about that. First Timothy chapter two, even a kindergartner can read it and realize, okay, the Bible says that men are to lead, women are not to usurp authority over the men in the church of a role. Now, now we're what you call a complementarian church. And here's why we call ourselves that versus egalitarian. Complementarian churches believe that men and women complement one another. Just like a quarterback compliments a lineman and a lineman compliments a quarterback. In football, you don't want the quarterback uh, playing on the, on the line. Right, Neil? <laughs> Here's a quarterback. Yeah, we don't want that. The lineman should stay on the line because he's really strong. He may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he's really strong. You want the quarterback who's kind of quick and agile and quick thinking, um, but they're different roles. And guess what? The coach makes the call. You're a quarterback and you're a lineman. Um, and you can rebel all you want, but it's, you're gonna lose if you switch those two roles. In the same way, God says, I made men and women and I've made women with these skills and gifts and I've made men with these skills and gifts. And see, we believe the Lord knew what he was doing and, he, and it's a compliment. When you get men and women working and serving together the way God really wants it, I think the team is unstoppable. Um, and by the way, uh, there's a false narrative spin and propaganda that there's people out there on podcasts saying churches that are complementarian think women should be barefoot and pregnant and they have no brain. And, and like they, they make this whole false narrative. I'll show you the women at Athey Creek in our leadership roles. We have administrative level women on our staff. We have women that are sharp and smart and amazing. And uh, Athey Creek is a better place because of that. And I would challenge anybody to come and really look at our church and tell us our women are, are pushed down and, and not able to you know, serve the Lord. That's ridiculous, but it's a false narrative. There's, it's, it's gotten weird. There's churches and, and podcasters out there saying that if a church is complementarian, they're a cult. Like that's the narrative today. Even though 99% of the churches were that just 10 seconds ago. It's just a modern movement. Why is the church moving in this to the egalitarian thing, hook, line, and sinker? They're just trying to be like the world. The world is trying to erase womanhood and say men and women, are, there's no difference. And that whole weird view uh, is actually hurt. The, the beautiful role women play, in, in my opinion, of what the Bible teaches. These women display that. These are the ones who are in the round the cross who get the A because they have a spiritual perception and depth that sometimes we guys, we lack. Um, if Athey Creek were just a bunch of guys, it'd be the most boring church in the world. Might be doctrinally solid, but we would lack that spiritual depth. And we're, my wife, is, she's always reminding me that, you know, if we're in life and something goes wrong, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, logically, what, what do we need to do? I need to go get my toolbox. I'm gonna get, you know, and, and my wife's like, honey, should we pray? <laughs> you are a pastor. 
And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, okay, Lord. And, and as soon as we pray, the Lord fixes the problem. Like it's, 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 it's just one of those things. She's got like a, a greater sensitivity towards spiritual things than I do. And I love that about her. And I love that about women in the church. Well, I, I'm running out of time. Uh, there's one more uh, uh, question and group of people. And that is at the cross, we see you and me. This is the big question. Um, we, are you compelled to be at the cross? Maybe some of you. Maybe some of you are here today because you have a drug problem. Your grandma drug you to church. <laughs> or your husband or your wife dragged you to church today. Um, hey, we're glad you're here. Um, and, and, and like those that were compelled to be at the cross, they didn't wanna be there. But today you find yourself looking at the cross here in Mark 15. And the question you're gonna have to ask yourself is, are you gonna be like thief A? or thief B, because we're the sinners, all of us, you included, but what are you gonna do about the cross? Are you gonna mock or are you gonna have faith? And can I just, as lovingly as I know how, tell you, I have never regretted believing and following Jesus. I hope that you would soften your heart. Maybe there's some reason you've never accepted Christ, but what you do about the cross will determine whether you go to heaven by God's grace through faith what do I gotta do? Do I have to sign up to Athey Greek? Nope, you gotta do what the thief on the cross did and have faith and believe and accept. Even as he asked, Lord, remember me, this is all you have to do. That's why my mom, she was saved, sitting on her couch, just saying, Lord, I want you to save me and I, I want you to forgive me for my sins. And she just confessed her faith and she was saved from that day forward. And then the works came years later as she just continued to serve the Lord, but salvation came by faith. It's so simple. And I'd like to encourage you in that. If you're one who's never accepted Christ, why wouldn't you? Um, I guarantee it's a better way. I'm not saying your life will be perfect. You might even go through worse times in your life. But see, see, some of you atheists might be saying, yeah, but Christians are crazy. There's a bunch of weirdos. Um, and I'll just say, you're totally right. But you know what I've observed? There's a bunch of atheists that are crazy and weirdos too. See, humanity is plagued with craziness and weirdoness. So you can either be a weirdo doomed for hell, or you can be a weirdo with the hope of heaven. I would choose the weirdos that are going to heaven. Um, humanity is weird, but it's not about humanity. It's about what Jesus did for you. And I'm gonna invite you to accept Christ, even right now. Would you bow your heads, please, with me? And Christians, would you just be in prayer? Just be in prayer right now. Um, if, if, if you're not one who's accepted Christ, I would love to pray that prayer of confession of faith with you. If that's you, um, would you just do a bold thing? I'm not gonna make you get in front of anybody or uh, march down to the front, but if that's you, would you look up at me and just give me a quick wave? And I'm gonna ask that everybody remain seated because it's really not cool <laughs> at this most important time of the service. Unless you have a really, really weak bladder, please uh, just remain seated for 20 more seconds. Um, and if that's you, would you just say, Brett, I, I realize that I, I need um, to, to accept the cross and repent of my sin and confess my, my need. If that's you, would you acknowledge that and say, okay, Brett, pray with me today, right where I said, I wanna pray that prayer. Is there anybody who would do that? Just lift your hand up and look up and acknowledge. I'll just, I'll just connect with you just for a second if that's you. And we'll just uh, take a second. Anybody? Cool, right there, I see you, man, that's awesome. You back there, cool. Good, good. Over here, yeah, good. Way in the back, cool. Over here, I see you and you, good. Awesome. 
What a cool thing. You know, it's, it's, it's just a simple prayer of faith, even as the thief made that confession. Let's do that right now. I want the whole church to pray this out loud. And if you raised your hand, if you're watching online and you wanna pray this with us, you can't. Um, but let's just confess together. Let's get behind these 10 or 12 folks right now who are accepting Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And Lord, as we go our way today, just wrap your loving arms around these people who've just confessed in faith, even as the thief on the cross, that they would know that, that they have the hope of heaven, not just a hope, but an absolute expectation of being saved by your grace through faith. Bless them and bless all of us as we go, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.